to Acts chapter 28. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me, Acts 28, which is at page 937 in your uh, pew Bibles. Acts chapter 28, we'll be reading verses 1 through 16. You might remember from last time that Paul has been shipwrecked with his companions and all of the people who were aboard the ship near an island that they did not recognize. Now, some of you picked up maps last week, and uh, maybe a few of you uh, received one from the uh, usher today. I printed those uh, from my ESV study Bible because I thought that maybe having a map of Paul's uh, time on ship um, would be helpful to you. Uh, At any rate, uh, Malta is where he is now on the far right of your map, that little tiny island. Of course, they didn't recognize that at the time. Uh, They shipwrecked off of that uh, island. Those who could swim did so through very rough surf to make it to shore. Others who could not used planks or pieces of the ship, presumably to paddle their way to land. It hardly mattered, of course, what that land was or where it was. It was land. After two weeks, at least two weeks of punishing tempest and storm, being driven helplessly about the sea with no idea what direction they were headed, a bay, any bay with a beach, was a welcome sight. They will learn the identity of that place soon enough, and the adventure will continue as we'll read in just a few moments after first we pray. Father in heaven, we open your word and are freshly reminded that we must have your help, the illumination of your Holy Spirit. He is the one who inspired Luke and guided his heart and his thoughts in writing these words. So now we simply ask that the same person who inspired this, uh, that every word should be written for us, now would also help us to receive it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 28, beginning at verse 1. After we were brought safely through, then we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened to his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. If justice is capitalized in your Bibles, Uh, that is right, that it should be. They have in mind a particular deity, uh, Justice, who uh, would have in their minds seen to the punishment of a murderer who escaped from the sea only to find his uh, fate, his just due, his comeuppance on the land. Verse 5, He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. 
But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. (laughs) Now in the neighborhood of that place, there were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months... We set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, there are many ways that one might describe the Christian life. Many words that might be applied, even derogatory words used by unbelievers who refuse this life for themselves. But there is one thing that may never be said of a genuine Christian life, that it is dull or one-dimensional. This slice of Christian life served up to us here nearly raw in these 16 verses near the end of Luke's record of our Christian predecessors in the church is a clear demonstration that the Christian life is anything but a flat or boring affair. The real life of a real Christian is one of depth and of texture, of contradictions even. Tensions, and at the very least, a curious and even messy admixture of many different elements. Looking at this history in Malta, I'm reminded of something that Paul once wrote to the Christians at Corinth, an amazing description of the Christian life, really. Lived through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors, says Paul, and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. 
as having nothing, yet possessing everything. What other life on the face of this earth can be described in such exhilarating terms than the life to which you and I, my brothers and sisters, have been called as we follow Christ through this world? I want to take some time this morning to look at this life of ours, to turn it first one way and then another, that we may learn not only to embrace it more and more, but to live it more and more fully in this brief moment that we have, these 70 or 80 or 90 fleeting years, if the Lord gives us that many. Consider with me how our lives as Christians must be and are a mixture of trial and triumph of grief and of joy, of sin and sanctification, of wrestling and relying, of the now and of the not yet. Think with me, for example, on that mixture of trial and triumph, of of accompanying grief and joy in the Christian life. Look, in just these few months on the island of Alta, you see triumph, don't you? We get it here in spades. Paul gets bitten by a poisonous snake. Apparently he had collected the snake with the sticks, dormant or at least listless from the cool air probably, but awakened by the heat of the fire, it is animated and latches itself onto Paul's hand. Such an event Of course, it's not unknown in history with the centennial this year of the outbreak of World War I and the rising interest, therefore, recently in the life of T.E. Lawrence, better known to us perhaps as Lawrence of Arabia. A similar case from his own experience will no doubt be quoted widely by many. When the fire grew hot, a long black snake wound slowly out into our group. We must have gathered it torpid with the twigs. The difference in Paul's case is that the snake didn't simply slither through the group. It latched on to Paul, onto his hand, and significantly was a poisonous snake. Some, by the way, think this was a later legend, as there are no poisonous snakes on Malta today. But uh, bear in mind, that was 2,000 years ago, and things uh, were very different. That these folk thought the snake was poisonous, these natives of Malta identified it as a poisonous snake, is very good evidence that there were poisonous snakes on Malta at the time. But, uh, But the point, of course, is that he was bitten by a poisonous snake, and he didn't swell up, much less die. The point, of course, is not that Christians should play with venomous, uh, poisonous snakes today, nor certainly do we have here grounds for incorporating snake handling into worship. A few weeks ago, Cody Coots, pastor in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, suffered the bite of a six-foot rattlesnake while handling multiple poisonous snakes. This uh, young pastor refused treatment just as his father 
and pastoral predecessor, Jamie Coots, refused treatment just a few months ago. You might remember Jamie, that is uh, the father, died in February from that snake bite, uh, raising public outrage over this practice. Now the son, Cody, is recovering from his bite, his blackened and swollen arm and hand slowly returning to normal, and his promise to continue handling snakes in worship stands. Well, Paul did not go looking for a snake to handle. This snake found him. But he didn't die. He didn't even swell up. Add to this miracle the miracles that Paul himself performed at Malta, the enthusiastic greetings he received from the saints of the Roman church, as we read, the safe arrival at Rome after so many attempts have been made on his life, and you have a life characterized by success and triumph, both physically and spiritually. But you also have here a life of sore trials, the shipwreck that cast them ashore the loss of their physical possessions in the wreck, depending now, dependence on folk whom they did not even know. Luke calls them literally in verse 2, barbarians, which meant basically that they were non-Greek speakers. Three months on hold on Malta with no apparent success in ministry. We don't read of a single Maltese conversion during the time that Paul was there for three months. And yes, he does arrive in Rome, but how? As a prisoner in chains. Well known, perhaps, to the Christians. He is a total nobody as far as the Romans are concerned and ends up, according to verse 30, if you jump ahead of our text, spending yet another two years on hold, waiting in Rome under Roman arrest. Brothers and sisters, what I've just described to you is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. This is the Christian experience for now. It's both. It's the height of triumph and joy. And it is a life marked by tears and trials, by struggles and by sadness. Please don't don't let this confuse you. There are plenty of people preaching today, preaching that if you become a Christian, all your problems will disappear, right? They'll simply go away. The sun will shine on you every day, and nary will another cloud appear on your horizon. But that's not what the Bible promises us. Not in this life. Indeed, in some ways, I think some of you can testify that your problems really began when you became a Christian. It was coming into the faith that started the real struggles of your life. How can it be this way? When the Bible describes us in terms like new creatures in Christ... And describes our salvation as unqualified deliverance. A new life, a new heart. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. 
Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We're being transformed from glory into glory and all the rest of those that we remember. How can it be that a life described that way can also be a life of suffering and trials? We might have a very hard time reconciling these in our minds. But it is simply true, and the Bible bears witness to this fact on virtually every page. Remember Peter writing, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And Paul's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Rejoicing and grieving come in the same basket for Christians. They come together. But I don't have to tell you that, do I? Most of you already know it by experience. And you have known how those two do not behave in our lives like oil and water repelling each other. As a matter of fact, we've seen and experienced how joy and triumph actually and wonderfully and maybe even a bit mysteriously transform suffering and trial. Now, triumph doesn't undo trial. Joy doesn't take away the pain. But it morphs it, it changes it, doesn't it? I've read Christian joy described as that wonderful warmth that a Christian feels on his back when in the midst of a terrible storm, he discovers the glory of God is still shining on him. We've known this together, haven't we? As a congregation, as a congregational family, we've gathered together to mourn. We've grieved together over the loss of loved ones. Mourning, yes. Genuinely grieving, indeed. And yet... At the very same time, rejoicing. We can do both, and we can do them at the same time, can't we? In fact, it's the joy that steadied us, steadies us, that restores our balance. Do you remember the immortal scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress following the despoiling of Doubting Castle and the killing of Giant Despair. Mr. Ready to Halt danced with Miss Much Afraid on the road. True, Bunyan says, he could not dance without one crutch in his hand, but I promise you he footed it well. I find it interesting, too, that it was likely during the two years that Paul spent under Roman arrest here that commence in verse 16 of our text that Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians. What do we call the letter to the Philippians? We call it an epistle. Oftentimes we call it an epistle of joy. Because, obviously, because of all that Paul has to say about rejoicing in that letter. 
interesting, I say, because both he and they were suffering under heavy trials when he wrote it and when they received it. He wrote it from his chains, the future so uncertain to his view. They received that letter facing their own set of troubles, persecution from unbelievers, the assaults of the world, not to mention the internal tensions and conflicts within the congregation itself. And he urges them to rejoice. Really? How about this, Paul? How about after the trials are over, after we've got you know, everything sort of put back in order, when we've solved these internal fights and struggles within the church, and when the world stops picking on us, how about then we rejoice? No. Rejoice, Paul says, in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Don't wait till the trials are over. Rejoice right through them. Rejoice even while the tears are hot on your cheeks. Because trial and triumph, weeping and singing are not mutually exclusive in the Christian life. Of course, they had not only Paul's command on this point, but they had also his example. We remember, don't we, back in chapter 16, that it was while he was visiting them in Philippi for the very first time some years before that he and his associate Silas had been arrested and severely beaten, thrown in prison, fastened in the stocks. Remember what they did that night as they were sore and bleeding and bruised and aching. You remember what Paul and Silas were doing? They sang. They sang in their stocks. They sang so that the other prisoners were listening to them sing and raising their praises to God. They're right there in that prison. But wasn't that the whole thing for Paul, after all? From the very beginning of his ministry, God's intention for him from the start. Now here we're standing at the threshold of the back door of the book of Acts. I, I almost hate to leave it. I've so enjoyed our time together in Acts. But here we are, just ready to step out the back door of this historical record and of the record embedded within Acts of Paul's ministry. We can look back to the beginning of that ministry when Paul was first called to this life and to this work. And we remember, don't we, the errand on which God sent Ananias in Damascus. Tell Paul, that man whom God had changed, was now a new creature, who had been transformed by God's grace, go and tell that most fortunate and happy man how much he must suffer for my name. Welcome to the Christian life, Paul. Here's how much you'll suffer. God says the same to us. I have made you new. 
I have given you triumph over the forces of darkness that threatened to hold you hostage. I have freed you. I have set you on the path to heaven. I have given you. You have, Jesus says, eternal life. Now here's how you must suffer for my name. In the meantime, I notice that I said, in the meantime. I meant to say that because this is not the way it always will be, dear flock. This mixture of trial and triumph, of joy and weeping, your life will not always and forever be like this. It is for now, that is true. And for reasons sufficient to the mind of God, it will be for us and for our children after us and for generations yet unborn until the Lord our God shall come. Which brings me to point out to you one more admixture in the Christian life that has sometimes been referred to in theology and uh, more particularly in eschatology, that specialized branch of theology, which is the study of the future. I say it's been referred to as the now and not yet. Thus far we've been thinking, haven't we, about the now, what we are experiencing in this life. But Paul's mind was not fixed only on the now, on the current trials, or even on the current triumphs. You needn't read much at all in Paul before you realize that he always had one eye set on the future. On the not yet, on the things to be, the things yet to come. And with a view for both, for what's going on right now, And for the coming day, Jesus' return, the consummation of Christ's victory, the wiping away of every tear, the ultimate victory that is already ours in Christ. I say with those two perspectives, Paul took a true measure of the events of his life and of the world. The future was never very far from Paul. The saints, to his thinking, though not yet glorified, are so certain to be glorified that he could put it in the past tense in his letter to the Romans. Those whom he uh, called, rather those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The not yet the things yet to be reach back to take hold of us now. And by those things we measure the now, by the things that are yet to be. Brothers and sisters, we've got to keep this mind about us. One eye to the now, of course lest we become indifferent or even apathetic about the world in which we live, failing to see how God and his kingdom are a present reality right now, and one eye on what is yet to be, lest we fall into the trap of thinking and living as if all that we are experiencing now is all there is. 
Lest we grow discouraged in thinking that what we have now is all that we shall see of the kingdom of God. We've got to train the eyes of our hearts to see God's hand working, moving, directing everything, all things, large and small, toward the fulfillment of his plan. Just as Paul saw his hand breaking into Malta and into Rome to accomplish all his holy will, even if we can't quite make sense of it, for now, for now, because we haven't the whole picture yet. You can sense maybe that this is not going to be easy. You're right. The Christian life is not easy. It was never meant to be easy. Living the Christian life is going to take your senses. It's going to take all of your senses, your spiritual senses, awakened and sharp and focused. But then, isn't that exactly what gives the Christian life its depth and its dimension? You are not, like so many people around you, drifting aimlessly on the flatlands between birth and death. That's not you. You are citizens of the kingdom of God. Everything in your life, your trials and your triumphs, your laughter and your tears, your rejoicing and your weeping are therefore meaningful and serving the high purpose of that kingdom both now and into the future when ultimately the weeping and the trials and the tears will give way completely to unalloyed laughter and triumph and joy. Amen.